Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today TransUnion's Matt Fabian talks about how worried Canadians are about the impact of inflation in the months ahead. Marcus Kolga, director of DisinfoWatch, warns of the ongoing efforts by Russia to continue their propaganda war right here in Canada. And Dr. Don Sin from St. Paul's Hospital talks about where we are with the latest COVID variant and how concerned we should be. So let's get started. Inflation is certainly the topic uh, du jour and has been for quite some time. There's a new study out from the folks at TransUnion, their Consumer Pulse study just released a few days ago. Soaring inflation and rising interest rates are casting a shadow over the outlook for many Canadians. And while most are positive about their finances right now, well over half say they're not confident about what's coming down the pike in the next 12 months. Here to talk about it is Matt Fabian. Mr. Fabian is Director of financial services research and consulting with TransUnion, the people who just released their Consumer Pulse study. Matt Fabian joining us from Toronto. Good morning, Matt. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, Not the best uh, news to share with us this morning, Matt, but you've done some good homework on this. Talk to us a little bit more about your findings on consumer confidence. We started this survey uh, at the beginning of the pandemic just as a way to gauge consumer sentiment about their their financial situation, how they're feeling. Um, And and we found as the pandemic started, there was more of a concern around um, uh, personal finances and being able to make payments as unemployment rates went up um, or or, um, people lost hours of work. Uh, And that started to, uh, you know, when the government subsidies kicked in Mm -hmm. and uh, those things happened that uh, we started to see more optimism, uh, and that continued right up to sort of um, the last quarter where we started to see there's still optimism about their current finances. We're starting to see a lot more um, or a lot less confidence in terms of their outlook for the future uh, as worries about inflation. Uh, higher interest rates and those kind of things start to creep back in. And of course, we we are now, uh, the, the next uh, increase uh, possible from the Bank of Canada comes up in, in uh, early June, Matt. And we're, we're sort of already baked into the notion of, of a half, uh, a 0.5 basis points increase. And now this morning, in some of the papers, including the National Post, they're talking about a 0.75%, three quarters of, a, of, of an, a point of increase in just a matter of weeks. Again, uh, more on on the way before the end of the calendar year. Is this what's causing people to be really nervous? I think it's half of it. There's sort of, it's a double-edged sword with inflation going up, um, just the general cost of living, gas, food, things like that go up. And so your discretionary spending uh, and and how you allocate your budget to things like bills, rent, whatever, um, you know, those become constrained and you have to make trade-off choices. Um, As these uh, policies come in to offset inflation, um, there's a subset of consumers that are affected that have potentially things like variable rate mortgages yep. or uh, uh, variable rate interest on, on certain credit, and the cost of that credit goes up. And so while uh, potentially inflation lowers and the cost of those day-to-day goods um, uh, become a little bit more affordable, that relief gets offset by a uh, higher minimum payment maybe for a mortgage. And so, um, you know, and as those two things kind of happen in tandem, uh, in some cases, there's people kind of getting, uh, you know, double hit while, while they kind of 
return to normal. Exactly. So now in terms of housing costs, uh, there is said to be, and you would understand this better than most being with the the credit rating agency TransUnion, Matt, but there is said to be a a pretty direct relationship between housing costs, housing prices, and interest rates. So as interest rates have nowhere to go but up, is it safe to assume that housing prices have nowhere to go but down? Um, It 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 does a, a little bit. Um, there's a lot of sort of dynamics at play in terms of demand and supply of, of houses. Um, but generally, as interest rates go up, the cost of that debt, the cost of a mortgage becomes uh, more. Uh, and so uh, the demand for perhaps um, uh, more expensive homes will, will go down as consumers maybe settle for maybe a more affordable uh, mortgage rate, mm-hmm. um, which could drive the cost of those higher end homes down for sure. Now, there's also said to be at the moment, and you've just touched on this, Matt, and I'd like you to, to dive into it a little deeper if you can. There's a, a certain hesitancy right now. People have sort of caught up in many cases, certainly not all. But as you pointed out, a lot of people were really hammered by the, the pandemic and saw their literally careers and livelihood evaporate in many cases, too many cases. But now there's a return, to, certainly in terms of the workforce, where there's no no problem getting work if you're looking for it. There are more jobs than there are people to fill them now. And yet there's, from a consumer perspective, Matt, there's a hesitancy right now. Do I commit to a new vehicle, a new, a new, a new, or do I just hang on for a second and see what the heck's coming up next? Yeah, we are seeing that. Uh, we saw, uh, while generally the, the outlook is favorable uh, in terms of people's finances, um, almost half in our survey still indicate they're cutting back on discretionary spending, things mm-hmm. like eating out, travel, entertainment. Um, it, it's well below the you know almost sixty percent that we saw during the pandemic. But um, I, I think certainly there's a there's a wait and see attitude, um, and and certainly what we're seeing is for those larger uh, discretionary items, um, there was a bit of pent up demand. So we did see a lot of uh, you know increase coming out of the pandemic in terms of um, new car sales, things like that. Mm-hmm. And as that demand was satisfied, it's not coming back. We are seeing sort of a drop um, in, in that demand. Matt is the Matt Fabian, friends, joining us from Toronto, Director for Research and Consulting with TransUnion Canada. And this is where I want to go with this next one, Matt. Your, Matt, your company is the credit rating, one of two major credit rating uh, organizations in North America. And you, therefore, keep people's credit scores. And this is something a lot of Canadians worry about on a daily basis. What are you, what are you learning? And you've just done this new survey. What have you learned about people's anxiety with respect to their credit scores? these days? Well, certainly uh, we're seeing more and more people monitoring their credit scores. Um, And so while uh, part of that is the availability now to monitor online, a lot of financial services and other companies are offering free credit monitoring. And so people are taking advantage of that. So there's, I think, certainly more awareness uh, of credit scores. And I think um, again, as uh, you know, through the pandemic, um, certain people uh, that maybe uh, were worried about their ability to take on new credit mm-hmm. or be approved for new credit were certainly um, a lot more um, uh, a lot more in tune to their credit scores and and what those scores were. Um, credit scores aren't the only thing that financial institutions use to evaluate you in terms of approve uh, the approval for credit, but um, it certainly is one of the one of the bigger ones. And um, you know we've seen generally over the last 
three, four years that the Canadian consumers are, are pretty resilient. We've seen that the credit scores have actually uh, migrated upward, and there's sort of more people improving than declining. Interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, even through the pandemic, which was contrary to what we had thought we would expect, um, so Canadian consumers are sort of very good with managing that, and uh, um, but there is uh, certainly, uh, our, our survey shows that there is uh, a little bit more anxiety about maintaining that than there was previously. Matt, can you uh, fill us in for the benefit of those who are still unfamiliar with the process? How can uh, Canadians check, uh, with the, take advantage of these opportunities to monitor their credit scores for free? Tell us more. You could, you could check with your financial institution to see if they are offering uh, free credit monitoring services. Um, and there are um, uh, companies out in, in the market um, that you could search online and just sign up and you can get credit reports uh, sent to your inbox um, you know, monthly. Um, and uh, if either of those don't work, you can certainly contact either of the credit bureaus and, and ask for access to your credit report. Uh, and they will mail you a copy of your full report. Oh, is that right? So because it is your credit report after all, so they don't have any kind of proprietary uh, uh, ownership of it, they'll be happy to share what they know about you with you. Yeah, the the, the credit scoring uh, or the credit monitoring services will provide you a score and, and sort of tell you where you are and if it's trending upward or downward. Mm-hmm. Um, the, credit, the full credit report will tell you uh, significantly more. It's a full detailed report that will say, here's everything we have on file, uh, every type of debt, um, every kind of any any delinquency that you have, and it's a good idea to do that, um, you know, once in a while anyway, just to validate and verify that um, they have it right, because it's collected from many many different um, uh, reporting agencies and, right. and, and, lend, and lend, lending institutions. And so, it just if if you're worried about your credit or if you're looking to make a major purchase, it's always a good idea to contact the credit bureau and ask for that full report, and you'll be able to see exactly what's in there. And it's a, it's a, a, probably a good idea to have a good look at it, Matt, before you see what other people are going to see written about you when you apply for credit for a car, a house, or whatever, right? That's right. And if, if you use the combination, you'll get that sort of score in your inbox. And if you notice that it's going down or you, you, it's not where you think it should be, um, you can certainly go to either of the bureaus or both and, and request um, request that full report and get the details on, on you know, what they have and what they're showing. And if something isn't right, you're able to dispute it and, and contact us and, and talk to us about you know, correcting that. Very important conversation to have this morning, Mr. Fabian. Thank you so much for giving us a little bit of your Saturday uh, to share the results of the latest survey. It's important information. Thanks. My pleasure. couple of headlines from the last couple of days that prompted us to invite our next guest to return to our show. Uh, from a couple of days ago, for Russian diplomats, disinformation is part of the job. And just yesterday, Barack Obama warns social media disinformation is hurting democracy. Time, we said, to get Marcus Kolga back on the program. Mr. Kolga is the director of Disinfo Watch, and he is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad and a good friend of this program over the years. Dr. Kolga, Marcus, good morning, sir, and welcome back to the program. 
Uh, good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's good to have you back with us, Marcus. Uh, let's just talk a little bit about that headline from Associated Press that caught my attention the other day. Certainly not news, just a reiteration of a story that we're all too familiar with. For Russian diplomats, disinformation is part of the job, and that includes the Russian embassy in Ottawa, doesn't it? Well, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Sterling. I mean, it's been the job of Russian diplomats going back to the Soviet era. Uh, in the, in the post-World War II uh, Cold War, uh, Russian diplomats were actively uh, engaged in promoting Soviet-era Russian propaganda, disinformation, um, you know, finding uh, disinformation agents, uh, whether it be here in Canada or here in Canada or in the United States, and, and promoting those sorts of narratives. And, and uh, this is a... Uh, a tactic that's been readopted by the Russians ever since Vladimir Putin came back into came to power in in uh, in in the year 2000, and uh, certainly over the past few weeks with the Russian invasion of of Ukraine, this uh, this is only intensified, especially as uh, Western governments pull Russian state media uh, off their public airwaves. Canada did so with RT, and right. so now the. The responsibility for promoting Vladimir Putin's narratives in, in places like Canada has, is really falling on the shoulders of of, uh, of the diplomats that are working in, whether it's in the embassy in, in Ottawa or consulates in Montreal, Toronto or Vancouver. And uh, and the narratives that they're promoting are, are rather vicious. They are completely aligned with uh, with the uh, the Putin regime, insofar as um, you know the dehumanizing narratives of, of the, the efforts to dehumanize Ukraine, Ukraine Ukrainians, um, uh, you know, delegitimizing their claims to sovereignty in, uh, in their nation, and so the, these um, these uh, diplomats are are, are frontline warriors for Vladimir Putin in that uh, on that front right here in Canada. Indeed, and of course, and this goes to the second headline, Marcus. Yesterday, Barack Obama warning social media disinformation is hurting democracy, and, and his point being that, and to yours, that the Russian yeah. embassies and consulates in Canada are active on a daily basis on social media. That's their platform of choice, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an open space where they can promote their their disinformation narratives. Um, you know, I think it's very important for Canadians to recognize that um, foreign governments, like the one in Russia, like the Chinese government, the Iranian government, what they do with these platforms is that they weaponize them. Uh, they weaponize them and use them as delivery vehicles for these disinformation narratives that are intended, as you know, Barack Obama has clearly stated, and many of us have been warning about for right. over a decade, is that they use these platforms um, to, to advance their own interests. Of course, you know, Russia uses it to promote disinformation about Ukraine, but they also use it to try and sow discord within our societies. Uh, and they try to, uh, you know, they latch into uh, polarizing issues. They push us apart using those, those issues. And, uh, and through that process, they try to destabilize and undermine uh, our democracy. Um, you know, these social media platforms have been slow to wake up to this mm-hmm. problem. Um, they've taken some measures. I think uh, Twitter probably lead amongst them. They're trying to play catch up uh, with these accounts and these narratives. There are others who are doing a terrible job of it. And I'm looking at Facebook. Uh, Facebook uh, is, is just a cesspool of, of various different disinformation narratives, uh, foreign government narratives, uh, conspiracy theories. And of course, YouTube and Google aren't uh, aren't too much better so you know i think that our government i think western governments in general need to do a much better job of 
I've, first of all, um, communicating and working with those social media platforms to get everybody working in the same direction to defend and clean up our information environment. Um, and barring that, I mean, uh, the EU just uh, now re- uh, passed legislation that's, uh, that will uh, require, um, legally require social media platforms to do more to clean up that, that uh, the information environment. So, again, if, if we can't, uh, you know, if these social media companies aren't going to work with us, um, and, and, and do that work uh, proactively, then, then we're going to have to uh, follow the EU lead and, and possibly introduce regulations to do, to, that, will, um, that, will, that will force them to do that uh, cleaning up of the information environment. And we're starting to see from the Trudeau government uh, indications of a desire to control the Internet. Now, they're calling it something else, and a lot of people yeah. are a little nervous because it smacks of censorship, and if you disagree with us, then we'll find ways to cancel you, et cetera, et cetera. But is, yeah. there, is there a place beyond letting us know that, by the way, such and such a social media site, whatever they say is just BS because they're a Russian front. Uh, that's something the government can tell Canadians on a daily basis more uh, effectively. But what about policing the internet and all of that disinformation uh, cesspool that you refer to? Well, look, I, I, I'm not sure that government regulation is the. I mean, the, the government regulation on those social media platforms and on the internet is, is the nuclear option. Um, you know, we we need to take greater efforts to, um, again, communicate with these social media platforms. Um, with our plat- with our project, Disinfo Watch, we have a very good relationship with a few of these social media uh, companies, especially Twitter. Um, when we see Russian disinformation narratives emerging on on their platform, we alert them to it, okay. and and they're very they're they're actually very quick to react. Um, and so we've established this. Um, this relationship with with Twitter, you know, I think the government and other civil society uh, actors working in this space should be doing the same. Um, these uh, Twitter is also interested, for example, and I think other social media companies are are as well in cleaning up that information. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of talking to them, and I think there's there's room for cooperation. We should learn from other countries that have done this. Taiwan has been exceptionally good and has been doing this for already for quite some time, whereby um, civil society actors work with. Uh, with the government and with social media and social when when those narratives that are attacking Taiwan's sovereignty or or, or other Taiwanese interests from China, they they're detected incoming. Um, civil society works with government and those social media platforms to dial back um, the algorithms that would otherwise promote those narratives. And, uh, and in many cases, they, they remove them. And this is just a working partnership they have. And this is something that we should also aspire to to achieve in, in Canada. Absolutely. Uh, Marcus, I need to take a break. Can I get you to stick around for a little bit? Absolutely. It'd be a pleasure. Just before we go to the break, and I'm, I'm going to, I have to ask you this because I, I said I was going to at the outset of the program. The attack, yeah. the, the disruption of service, which affected so many thousands of Canadians in the past few days uh, by Sunwing, which they now say was an external attack on their system, and it was global because they use a global system for booking and all the rest of it, and now they're doing everything by hand, which has got thousands of us inconvenienced. (laughs) Was that attack from a bad actor like Russia, or was that ransomware? Where did that come from? Well, that's a great question. You know, even if it's not a state-based actor, these these gangsters, these online gangsters who engage in, you know, uh, ransomware attacks and such... Um, these are often uh, gangsters that are operating out of Russia, and they're doing so 
um, with the blessing of the of the Putin regime. So whether it's uh, you know somebody actually acting on behalf of the Russian government or acting from inside of Russia, um, you know it's pretty much the same thing because Vladimir Putin is very much aware of what these uh, these online gangsters are doing. Mm-hmm. So you you can't separate separate the, the, the two of them. I mean, it's possible that it could have been these attacks could have been coming from from elsewhere, but Russia. And these Russian online gangsters are, are known to engage in, in ransomware attacks. So it wasn't a peak of paranoia that my mind immediately went to the Russians when we when this all came down. Look, you know, follow the money, uh, follow the, you know, look behind the curtain. And uh, the, I went to Russia immediately. So I'm not too off base. No, you're not. And, uh, you know, there have been other high profile ransomware attacks. You know, the Colonial Pipelines attack, which shut down uh, these gas, very important uh, East Coast gas pipelines in, in the U.S. Yes. a few months ago. Uh, you know, it wasn't the Russian state, but it was clearly identified that those were Russian hackers. And again, if they're Russian hackers, uh, you know, no one is really acting independently in Russia. Everything is done under the uh, watchful eye of its leader, Vladimir Putin. And so you can't separate the two. And, and it's ultimately Russia and the Russian government that needs to be held to account for these sorts of attacks. And a pleasure to welcome Marcus Kolga to the program. Uh, Marcus is the director of disinfowatch.org, joining us this morning from Toronto, talking about disinformation from Russia during wartime. Uh, we did open the phone lines. Marcus, let's include some of our callers going forward. Ron in Burnaby, good morning to you. Hey, good morning, Sterling. Um, uh, Marcus, um, I think uh, Clayton Walnum was a god. So uh, when we talk about hacking, um, can we not just look at the uh, giant boogeyman, but remember North Korea, Iran, Romania, yeah. right? They're still out there. They're still doing their thing. And then you've got the organized gangs, right? Some of them with the, you know, national sanction and some of them without. Yeah. Right. So, uh no, your your point is well taken, Marcus. Ron simply reminding us that um, that uh, the, uh, the Russia is certainly not the only actor. Now, you've also, of course, included China because they are even bigger uh, at this. But there are many other players, and they've not left the the game uh, just because okay. Russia is now at war, have they? Yeah, yeah, and you're you're right, Ron. I mean, there are so many other actors. North Korea is very active. They have a, a have a large army of hackers. Um, that uh, that are working on behalf of the regime and, and are also engaged in, in deeply in criminal activity. Um, you know, the Chinese government has a, a the Tencent army, a, a massive army engaging in disinformation and hacking. Um, and the Russians, the Russians just happen to be very good at it because they've been doing it for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And it and it uh, appears that some of the most sophisticated online uh, criminal activity, the the online gangsters, many of those uh, op- operate. Uh, with the approval of, of the of the Russian government, and often those those services are linked to to one another. So um, this is uh, you know this is something that we need to be keeping a much better closer eye on and, and defending ourselves against. Marcus, let's talk a little bit about the other side of the equation. You've described to great detail and chilling detail uh, the the infrastructure that the Russians have in Canada and around the world in terms of being able to spread disinformation so easily and so effectively. But let's flip the coin for a second, sir, and talk about who's consuming this and who's buying this bunk. Yeah, well, I mean, this goes back to our conversation earlier about social media. You know, I think that uh, Russia, uh, China uh, as well, have, have both of these regimes have been uh, uh, very uh, very effective in exploiting the 
open nature of our information environment, exploiting those uh, social media platforms, uh, other uh, various different vectors where they can get their narratives into um, into the Western uh, into Western debate, mm-hmm. into the most important issues that we're talking about. And how they do this is that they they identify specifically some of the most polarizing issues of the day. So COVID was was clearly a a boon for these information warriors mm-hmm. because what they would do is they would latch on to the extremes, both on the left and on the right. Um, you know, vaccine hesitancy was a popular narrative, uh, and the anti-lockdown narratives. And what they do is they latch on to the far left and the far right, and then they start tugging. And they start tugging until the fabric of our society is torn apart. Um, this is this is how they, they operate. And they operate in this way using a, a, a constellation of various different platforms. Um, it's not all just Russian state media. These are these are proxies, some of them operating right here in Canada. Mm-hmm. And those those narratives get filtered up through these various different channels and platforms that are all interconnected. And uh, sometimes those narratives move into the social, into a mainstream media. Rarely, um, in some cases, there are even elected officials who, um, you know, uh, promote these narratives mostly unknowingly. And so this is how the, that system works. And we're unfortunately, um, you know, Canadians who don't have the cognitive resources to understand where these narratives are coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at people of my parents' generation who are used to. We're used to just picking up a, a newspaper or a magazine from a newsstand or watching their uh, local TV news report and sort of trusting the information that they receive. Sure. On social media, they simply believe uh, that everything that is promoted there is, is true. And if you don't have that understanding that you, you need to double check the sources and the headlines that you're seeing on social media, that exposes a lot of Canadians to these narratives. And that's what these governments are unfortunately exploiting. And that's uh, what a lot of these platforms are being accused of also is not doing enough vigilance and checking of the information that uh, bad actors are using their platforms to disseminate. Yeah, you're right. And, and it's unfortunately, it's those really juicy headlines, the ones that seem completely unbelievable, that uh, generate the most clicks. And it's really the clicks, it's those eyeballs that generate revenue for social media companies mm-hmm. through advertising. So there's clearly, you know, there's a reluctance to reduce those those juicy uh, headlines that are, that are sometimes being posted on social media, but it's something that these, uh, these social media companies need to start taking more seriously and taking responsibility for. Very quickly here, Alan says, uh, perhaps it's time to hack the hackers, Marcus. Perhaps we're too politically correct and nice to allow retaliatory hacking. Alan says, I say, give them what they give us. What about that? Yeah, well, you know, I'm a bit hawkish on this, and I tend to agree with Alan that I think that if we're looking at China and Russia and Iran, um, you know, just standing back and just defending, um, it's not going to solve the problem. We need to go on the offensive. And I completely agree that, you know, we should be adopting those capabilities to, to hack back, both with regards to information warfare, but also in the cyber realm. All right. um, you know, these are, these are schoolyard bullies. People like Vladimir Putin, the only thing that he understands is when you punch him in the nose, uh, that's when he backs off. Uh, just standing back isn't going to make him back off or stop this sort of nasty behavior. Interesting stuff, Al. Appreciate the very timely email. Marcus Kolga, always a pleasure, sir. We appreciate your giving up some time, perhaps unexpectedly, on a Saturday morning to be back with us. A treat, very much so. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, Sterling. 
pleasure to welcome Dr. Don Sin to the program this morning. Dr. Sin is director and the DeLazari Family Chair at the Center for Heart-Lung Innovation. He is a Canada Research Chair in COPD and a professor in the Faculty of Medicine at UBC. Dr. Sin practices at St. Paul's. Dr. Sin, good morning and welcome, sir. Well, good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. Can you uh, bring us up today? We just did a chat with uh, our pollster, Mario Canseco, talking about the anxiety level of British Columbians this fine-looking uh, April weekend. Uh, where are we with this uh, Omicron variant uh, in British Columbia this weekend, Dr. Sin? Uh, I think uh, the situation is pretty good, uh, but the variant has not disappeared. In fact, the double variant, the so-called BA2, appears to be slowly emerging um, uh, in British Columbia. So I think we still need to uh, be on guard for uh, um, COVID transmission in the community. Uh, there are, uh, and again, we spoke with uh, Mario Canseco about anxiety levels in the general population. Does it surprise you, Dr. Don, that uh, many British Columbians are still very concerned about even going out to the grocery store uh, because of the relaxation of some of the safety protocols we've been observing for the last couple of years? Well, I, I think we, we, sh- we should keep in mind that uh, the tr- uh, community transmission has gone down significantly. So I think we can take some solace in that fact. However, the variant is still around us. So I think it's very, very important, especially for the elderly and those immunocompromised, to practice social distancing and uh, wearing masks wherever possible. Okay. Now, one of the things that you've been working on in research, and you've been doing so much work, I doubt we're going to have time to cover it all. But (laughs) one thing that you've been looking at is rapid antigen testing. We uh, still conduct those tests here in my workplace. Uh, And it, of course, was at uh, the airport forever in a day for the last couple of years. What have you found about uh, rapid antigen testing? Well, these are highly, highly effective in identifying those individuals who have COVID-19 and are transmissible, i.e. that they can transmit the virus to others. And the, the beauty is, as you know, uh, you get the results within about 15 minutes exactly, yeah. of, of testing, and um, there are almost, n- almost no false positives uh, with, uh, with this um, rapid testing. So we've done it in, uh, at YVR and elsewhere, and um, it is feasible, it's easy, and it provides assurance uh, for those passengers or in congregant setting that they and others around them are not transmitting the virus. Dr. Sin, you're a respirologist. You deal with respiratory issues on a daily basis. And one of the consequences of getting COVID-19 for some has been what they call long-haul COVID that invariably affects one's respiratory system. How? Well, that's an excellent question. We're currently conducting a study to find out why about 10 to 20 percent of COVID patients uh, are left with the long haulers or long COVID uh, symptoms. And some are totally incapacitated by the long COVID after uh, symptoms in in the respiratory system. But uh, just keep in mind, the long COVID symptoms can affect elsewhere including the brain, leading to brain fog and general fatigue and and muscle joints and so forth. So this is a significant problem uh, in the community, and we know very little about how 
and why this happens and how to treat it. And of course, in the process of discovering more about that, uh, you're also, and again, with your, uh, you're a Canada Research Chair in COPD. So if you're a person with emphysema or COPD or some other chronic respiratory ailment, the past couple of years have been pretty darn miserable, haven't they? They really have, a Sterling. Uh, most, of my, most of my COPD patients and asthma patients have stayed indoors um, and have, have not been able to socialize or, or go out into the community. However, the flip side is that they have been protected, for the most part, from uh, the devastating effects of COVID. And uh, COVID preferentially affects those with chronic respiratory problems and those with obesity and diabetes. And so you've talked about the uh, impact of COVID on patients with COPD. One would assume considerably more profound than a person who isn't dealing with respiratory issues. Exactly. Not only are COPD patients more susceptible to the virus, once they get it, their risk of um, suffering severe consequences, including death, rises anywhere between 200 times to 400 times. Did Because a lot of these patients with respiratory issues have been compelled basically to stay indoors, to stay out of the mainstream of uh, mixing with society. I mean, we've all reduced our, our, our activities uh, to some degree or another over the last couple of years. But some for some, Dr. Sin, the reduction has been dramatic, has been almost complete. So in, in those cases where it's been essentially a lockdown without the formality being imposed... How, how are people dealing with that? Well, you, you know, people are uh, exercising indoors in their own uh, houses or apartment, um, but uh, and going out uh, occasionally with masking and some in some cases double masking mm-hmm. um, and getting groceries uh, brought in by others. So people have found alternative ways of dealing with the lockdowns, but it, it's it's been very difficult. And the social isolation that people feel is profound. And so the rates of depression and anxiety have gone up significantly among uh, these patients. Well, and again, of course, that complicates someone's medical situation, doesn't it, Dr. Sin? Because if you're already dealing with medical, you're medically compromised, and now you're forced to be essentially a loner, locked up in your own place for your own good, they tell you, and you know it is, but nonetheless, it's going to compound your medical issues because now you've got a psychological thing tossed in on top. It's not healthy, is it? No, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Uh, we talk about comorbidities in COVID. And one of the, I think, underplay comorbidity is depression and anxiety related to, to the social, uh, social isolation and lockdowns. And this has a profound Im- impact, not only on the physical health of individuals, but also the mental health. And have you found, as a practitioner dealing with those physical realities of all those people and their various lung and respiratory ailments, have you found that it's, you've had access to some kind of teammate from the psychology department uh, through all of this to kind of give, uh, give you and your patients a bit of a lift? Yeah, we have. We've had tremendous support from the uh, psychologic and psychiatric uh, communities at St. Paul's and elsewhere. But the resources are insufficient to deal with the demand in the community. Uh, And so uh, this has been a a real problem in the medical system um, during the pandemic. 
Dr. Sin, and it's not a political question. It's a curiosity question. There is a big, uh, we talked about this with Mario Canseco, the pollster. There's a, there's going to be a national inquiry in the United Kingdom into COVID-19 and the management thereof. Would you favor a similar inquiry eventually here in Canada? Oh, absolutely. I think the more we know about what we did and what we did not do, the better off we'll be so that in the future, if there is another pandemic, and there may be, that we'll be much better prepared to deal with uh, the community issues. We Uh, went into this pandemic almost blind without mm -hmm. much knowledge, and I'm sure we've made a lot of mistakes as a result, and we want to avoid those mistakes going into the future. And finally, Dr. Sin, uh, and we're grateful for your time on a Saturday morning. Any words of advice uh, on this lovely April weekend for people still feeling a little concerned, a little perhaps over-anxious about just getting out there and getting back to, quote, normal? <laughs> what I would say is that uh, COVID uh, is not very transmissible in the outdoors. So, so on a day like today where there's sunshine uh, and fresh air, I would encourage people to go outside and enjoy, um, uh, in, enjoy our environment, enjoy uh, our surroundings. Um, but when going indoors for a prolonged period of time, make sure you take precautions. Still, the, uh, there is COVID in the community, so uh, make sure um, yes, there is some social distancing and that there's good ventilation in the, um, the office or restaurant or any other indoor places that you'd like to visit uh, this morning. And on a day like this, open the windows. Dr. Don Sin, thank you so much for joining us this morning, sir. We do appreciate your time very much. Thanks so much, certainly. All the best. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.